Let's just pray. I feel like I'm looming over you a bit now. <laughs> now let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. Please, would you speak to us uh, through it this evening. Uh, teach us what it means to live by faith in you. Uh, create that faith in our hearts by your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, we started last week uh, looking at Abram. Uh, by the way, I'm probably going to flip-flop between calling him Abram and Abraham because it's hard to remember Abram. People shouldn't change their names halfway through their lives. It's confusing. Um, it's not really fair. He didn't have any choice. God told him to. Um, Abram, we started looking at last week, and uh, Peter uh, gave us some context um, The world we saw was fallen. Humanity had fallen into sin. And the question was, how do you save the world? How do you save a world? And uh, we saw it doesn't work to just save the good people because nobody was good enough. And so the only way, or at least the way that God chooses to save a world, is that he picks an insignificant person a person we wouldn't have expected who has nothing about him that would make us think, yeah, that's the guy, he could save the world, and chooses him and says, you are going to be the beginning of my new plan. And that person is Abram. What we didn't uh, really do last week was start to look at the man himself. Who is Abram? Now, Abram gets a, a uh, a lot of time Uh, In the book of Genesis, he gets a lot of chapters devoted to his life. He's clearly a very important figure. He's important uh, when you go through the rest of the Bible as well. It's particularly important, actually, when you get into the New Testament, and particularly important for the Apostle Paul, who has a lot to say about Abraham, as he is by then. What is it about Abraham that the Bible sees as being vitally important? Now, I don't want to contradict what was said last week. Actually, the most significant thing about Abraham is that God chose him when, from a human point of view, he could have chosen anybody else. He chose Abraham. That is the most important thing, and it's what we need to always bear in mind. Uh, Sometimes when we get into uh, stories of Old Testament characters, We start to look at the characters for their own sake, see what great heroes they were, try to live up to their heroism, puzzle a little bit over the less good stories that are reported and wonder why uh, those are recorded for us. Uh, We need to bear in mind, ultimately this isn't the story of Abram. Ultimately it's the story of God saving his world. But still, the Bible does hold this guy up to us as an example as a character we want to be following. And the reason is that the Bible's verdict, overall verdict on Abraham slash Abraham, when you take a broad view of his life, is that this was a man of faith. Uh, In fact, Paul in Romans 4 calls him the man of faith. The kind of archetypal man of faith. If you want to know what faith looks like, Abraham is your man. And that becomes pretty important because Paul also says, quoting the story of Abraham, 
Abraham believed God, had faith in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham is an example of faith, and he's an example of faith that leads to righteousness, faith that leads to a right and proper relationship with God. So this guy is important. He's really important. And um, brilliantly, in, in chapters 12 and 13, we actually have a kind of, almost an overview of what Abraham's life is going to be like in terms of his faith. We have an overview of what faith looks like, what Abraham's faith looks like, and what things are actually going to crop up in Abraham's life which are going to threaten his faith. What things are going to make him turn away from the way of faith. Now, overall, Abraham is a man of faith. Um, It's a great blessing, and let me do some application in advance, that Abraham isn't consistently and always and totally a man of faith. Um, If he were, I think he'd be a a pretty discouraging example to us as we stumble along and mess up and fail to have faith on a daily basis. Overall, Abraham is a man of faith, but there are slip-ups, and we're going to see some of them uh, in chapters 12 and 13. Let me um, just ask you a question first. Perhaps you can talk to the person next to you about it for about 30 seconds. Uh, What is faith anyway? Well, I hope you've um, come up with some good answers. I'm not going to ask you about them, just in case you have come up with uh, good answers and you undercut my, uh, my sermon. <laughs> uh, although, admittedly, that would allow us to um, wrap things up at ten past seven and go home. Uh, I think it's great, actually, that in the story of Abraham, we have not a kind of definition of faith, not a kind of this is what faith is, um, although as, as a philosopher I would love that. Um, But we have a story of faith. We have an account of what faith looks like. And we can work out what faith is by looking at what Abraham is and does. Uh, And I I just want to uh, look at this uh, under three kind of sections, really. There's the first bit of chapter 12, uh, where Abraham travels uh, from Haran, uh, where he's been living, uh, into Canaan. 
uh, because God tells him to. And he builds uh, an altar in Canaan. And then there's the second bit where Abraham travels out of Canaan into Egypt because there's a famine. Uh, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And then there's a third bit where he goes back into Canaan and has to separate from Lot. And I think there's stuff we can see about the life of faith uh, in all of those. And we can see something about the enemies of faith. What is it that is going to stand against faith in Abraham's life? Well, the story uh, kicks off, as we, as we saw last week, with, with God and not with Abraham at all. Uh, Abraham is with his family. Uh, as far as we know, everything's happy, although, admittedly, um, his dad has just died. And then the Lord says to Abraham, you need to leave this place uh, and you need to leave all of your relatives uh, and go somewhere else to a land that I'm going to show you. Um, I think it's fascinating that initially God doesn't even say which bit of land it is that Abraham's meant to be going to. This is very much a step at a time kind of pilgrimage. Just leave your house, I'll show you where to go. Leave everything behind. And there's great promises attached to that. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. Your name will be great. In fact, all the families of the earth will be blessed in you, Abraham. It's a great promise. And what we see is that Abraham acts on the promise. He immediately acts as if this message that he has heard is true and is trustworthy. God says, leave and I will bless you. Abraham leaves because he believes God when he says that he will be blessed. He obeys God. Abraham went, it says, as the Lord had told him. And what we see immediately is that that is faith. Abraham went as the Lord had told him. He did as he was told because... He believed God. I think we um, really struggle to kind of get our heads around what this means for Abraham. Uh, it's a complete change of lifestyle for him. Uh, he's switching from being a, a city dweller to being a, a nomad. He's switching from having a family and presumably some means to, to being by himself uh, out there in the wild. And he's doing it because... Well, it's not that wild, I'll admit you. He has got a lot. Of, he's got a whole entourage, which is admittedly going to get much larger. But he is leaving his family, apart from Lot. Uh, Lot comes with him for the time being. This is faith. This is faith. He sets out. He doesn't know where he's going, but he sets out because he's following God. And when he gets to Canaan, he gets told, to your offspring, I'll give this land. This is the place. Here it is. We're here. I think it's great that that comes when Abraham arrives, that reassurance. It'll be here. This is the place. You'll get it. Because it's kind of, he's believed and therefore he is given another promise. Well, that's a great demonstration of faith. Great demonstration of faith. Particularly as the, uh, the author just records, sort of in an offhand way, at that time the Canaanites were in the land. Uh, this isn't a kind of an empty place that Abraham could think, yeah, I can settle down here. I can... I can build a city here, I can have, have uh, descendants. This is, this is an occupied land. Uh, there are cities here, actually quite powerful cities here. And this is not a place that Abraham can just walk into and take over. But still, he takes God's promise and believes it. 
Which makes um, the kind of second chunk of chapter 12 a little difficult to understand. Maybe there's a bit of a time lapse. Maybe Abraham's been hanging around in Canaan for a while, wondering what the next thing to happen is going to be, uh, wondering whether God has forgotten him a bit, maybe. And then a famine kicks off. A famine kicks off and so Abram leaves Canaan. We're not told that he was wrong to leave Canaan. Uh, there are maybe hints of it in that mostly when Abram moves it's because God tells him to. Uh, and in this instance, God hasn't told him to do anything. But Abram sets off. He sets off because he wants to keep himself and his entourage alive. He wants food. It's only sensible. What's perhaps less sensible um, is disguising the identity of your wife and uh, claiming that she's your sister. Um, <laughs> I must admit, I've always found this episode, which uh, appears to be something of a, a family game for Abram. He does it uh, a couple of times. His, his son engages in it as well, uh, just pretending that your, your wife is your sister. Um, I, I've often found it a bit odd, uh, a little amusing, to be honest, um, what is Abram playing at? Well, to be honest, I'm not sure I understand uh, his strategy. Um, presumably he didn't count on Pharaoh being so smitten with his sister uh, that he would take her into his palace, um, because that's going to cause difficulty later on. If, if Abram ever wants to leave Egypt again, he's got to say, can I have my uh, sister back, please? Um, but whatever, whatever Abram was thinking... I guess we can see what was going on in his heart. Uh, he was afraid. He was afraid. He was going into Egypt without any specific word from God, uh, and he was afraid that this was going to turn out badly. He was afraid that he was going to be killed and uh, his wife was going to be taken. It's not a completely irrational fear, to be honest. Sarai is pretty old, actually, at this stage, but maybe she just really was really, really good-looking. Right, um, but Abraham has this rational fear that he is going to be killed for her sake. But I think we're meant to read this story and think, how can you have this fear at this stage? Haven't you already packed up your life and moved into a, a new place and a new country because God promised to bless you. Isn't that what is going on at the beginning of chapter 12? I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonours you I will curse. God could hardly find a stronger way of saying to Abram, I am on your side, Abram. I have a plan for you. I am with you. You're mine and I am on your side. But Abram seems to forget that in this instance. He forgets it, and he becomes afraid. That's actually going to become, I think, a, a big difficulty for Abraham throughout his life. Fear is an enemy of faith. What, the way fear works against Abraham's faith is that it causes him to be forgetful. It causes him to focus on the difficult things around him and to forget the word of God that he received in the past. The promise goes out of his mind and instead of the promise and instead of God he's thinking about Pharaoh and he's thinking about the difficulties in Egypt and he's thinking about what might happen in the future. 
You can almost say that Abraham's problem is that he's forgotten what is definitely going to happen in the future because God has promised that it will happen. And instead, he started to turn over in his mind what might happen in the future. That's always going to be a problem uh, for faith because we just don't know what might happen in the future. And as soon as your brain starts to dwell on what might happen in the future, there are 101 things and many of them are bad. Abraham should have kept focused on what he knew was going to happen in the, fu- in the future, that his descendants would inherit the land and that he would be blessed and protected. The episode didn't end well and Abraham was lucky, it's not a good word, that God was there to bail him out, frankly. Uh, The Lord steps in, uh, rescues Sarai and restores her to Abraham. And he can set off again. First hiccup in Abraham's faith is caused by fear. In chapter 13, I think we have a, uh, another picture of actually what faith looks like when it's working. Abraham is back in Canaan. Back, frankly, where I suspect the narrator wants us to think he should have been all along. He's back in Canaan. He's loaded now. Um, his, uh, his flocks and herds, of course, have been acquired in a slightly dubious way. Uh, They were given to him because Pharaoh was trying to win over Abraham's sister. Um, But Pharaoh generously hasn't demanded that they be given back. And so Abraham takes them with him. So there's Abraham. And we find out now that Lot, his nephew, is also wealthy at this stage. And the simple fact is there's just not enough room. There's not enough room for them to to camp together. There's a limited amount uh, of pasture. There's a limited amount of ground. Now, Abraham is the, uh, the eldest here. Abraham has certain familial rights. I'm pretty sure Abraham could have said to Lot, uh, I'm going to take that bit of land and uh, you can stay over here if that's okay. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he offers Lot first choice. The whole land is in front of you, he says to Lot. Take what you want. I'll have the leftovers, that's fine. Now that might uh, look like it's just a bit of generosity. Maybe Abraham was just a very generous uncle. Maybe Lot was his favourite nephew. Um, but I think we're meant to see it as more than just generosity. I think we're meant to see it as an act of faith. Abraham knows that he's going to get a land. The Lord has promised it to him. And so he can say to Lot, you take what you want. I'll have whatever the Lord gives me. We know that uh, Lot takes the best part. Now, we know, of course, if we've read ahead, we know what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, the narrator kind of gives us a trailer by mentioning that the men of Sodom are very wicked. Um, But actually, I don't know whether Lot knows that. I don't know whether Lot is deliberately wanting to live near a wicked city. I suspect not. The verdict of the Bible on Lot is actually very generous. Uh, Lot, according to Peter, is a righteous man. Uh, which you perhaps wouldn't pick up if you just read the stories about Lot in Genesis. Lot is just doing the sensible thing. 
Lot goes to the Jordan Valley. It's the best bit. It's got the best pasture. Perhaps um, it's an exaggeration when the narrator describes it as like the garden of the Lord. But we're meant to think this is like Eden. Lot looks around him and says, that's like Eden over there. I'm going that way. It's also, frankly, just the sensible thing to do. Uh, Lot moves closer to the cities. Um, it was pretty normal, uh, as I understand it, which is my understanding is limited, uh, that there would be a kind of symbiotic relationship between the herdsmen and the cities. They needed each other. Uh, by being near the cities, Lot had a position of security. He had somewhere to retreat to if there was trouble. He had a stable base that he could, uh, could draw upon. Also, Lot, we know, unlike Abraham, had children. And maybe he just thought, it's time for me to uh, get my daughters married off. Uh, maybe. It was a sensible thing to do. I don't think we can blame Lot. He was maybe a bit selfish. Um, <laughs> maybe he could have demurred and said, no, 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 you, you, you choose first. Uh, so maybe it was a bit selfish, but it was sensible. It was sensible. Abraham gets whatever is left. I think that's an act of faith. Just notice the contrast. Uh, in 13.10, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered. Lot is looking with his eyes. He is saying, where's the best bit? As far as I can tell. Look what... Uh, God says to Abraham in verse 14, The Lord said to Abraham after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, north and south and east and west. All the land you see I give to you and your offspring forever. See, there are two lifting up of eyes there. Lot, just by himself, lifts up his eyes and looks around and looks for the bit that looks best to him. Abraham receives a command from God, Lift up your eyes and look around. It is all yours. I promise it to you. It's pretty vital um, to Abraham's faith that the Lord keep coming and reinterpreting the situation for him. Because the situation could look like, I've lost my nephew and I've lost the best part of Canaan. But now it is something different because God says, all of this is yours. You have trusted me. And all of this will go to your offspring. I think we um, get puzzled about faith. We get puzzled about faith because we uh, hear sayings like, I wish I had your faith, uh, as if faith was some sort of substance that some people had and other people didn't have much of. Um, maybe there's a faith bank where we can withdraw faith. I just need some faith. Oh, here's some faith. Um, not faith, obviously. That'd be, that'd be ridiculous. Um, or, or we, we, we have this kind of idea of faith as a sort of vague, mystical thing. I have faith. You're a man of faith. Which kind of means you walk around the world in a kind of serene cloud because, I don't know, you're on drugs or something. Um, biblical faith is actually not vague or mystical like that. Uh, it's not a substance you can have more or less of. Uh, biblical faith as we see it in the story of Abraham, is just taking God at his word. It's just saying, if God says it, that is the way 
it is going to be. When I put it like that, uh, it sounds quite easy, I guess. Just take God at his word. Um, But what we see in the story of Abraham, and what we're going to see more and more as we go through, is that more often than not, that means acting in a way that is not sensible and looks crazy to those who don't have the word of God. It's actually going against what you see. It's saying, whatever I see in the world, whatever my circumstances look like, I'm going to take God at his word. If you want to see how difficult that is going to be, continue following the story of Abraham until you see him and his son, for whom he has waited for decades, with some wood and a knife climbing up Mount Moriah. Abraham has been told to kill his son. And he's going to do it. Hebrews tells us that that he's going to do it because he believes that God can even bring Isaac back from the dead. See, he believes that when God said, Isaac is the one through whom your descendants are going to be counted, he believes that God meant that. And therefore, if God tells him to kill Isaac, God must have a way of bringing Isaac back because God doesn't break his promises. But I can't believe that knowing that made that journey any more easy for Abraham. I um, once gave a a sermon where I said, you know what, I think the world thinks that faith is like putting on blinkers like you would put on a horse so that you just ignore the difficult parts of the world and just... Imagine that the world is easy. Ignore all the bits that are hard to fit in with your biblical view. Well, I don't think that is what faith is like. I think faith has to wrestle with all the tough stuff. I think Abraham has to wrestle with all the tough stuff. But at the same time, faith surely is saying, whatever I see out there, whatever I see out there, I'm going to believe what God has said. I will believe it even if everything contradicts it. For us as Christians, uh, of course, the word of God, the word of God that we're called to believe is ultimately Jesus Christ. And I think when we look at Jesus, we understand exactly what this means. Because what we're called to trust in is a crucified Messiah. We're called to trust in somebody who is dying on a cross. And it really does not look like anything is going well. It really does not look like this is the place where humanity is going to be made righteous and millions are going to be saved for the glory of God. It doesn't look like it. But that's where we rest our faith. That's what we believe. Um, let me just suggest a a few kind of practical applications. What is it going to look like to live by faith this week? I don't know uh, what your week is going to be like. Um, I imagine there will be bits of it that will be hard. Uh, Maybe they won't be massively hard. Maybe they will. Maybe they'll be hard. Maybe they'll just be frankly dull. Maybe there'll just be a lot of drudgery in your week. I wonder whether it would be easy at that stage to wonder is, is God good? Is God in control of my life? 
does God have a plan for me? It'd be a really easy thing to do, wouldn't it, to look around the world and say, it really doesn't look like it. Maybe it's really hard. It really doesn't look like God is good. Maybe you're just not where you want to be doing what you want to be doing. It doesn't look like God has a plan. But God says that he does have a plan and that he is good. He says it in scripture. I think perhaps more importantly, he says it when he sends Jesus. He has a plan. Uh, Romans 8 says that if he gave up his son, he'll give us all things. So our faith, again, is founded on Jesus. My faith that actually there's a plan for me this week, that God isn't just mucking about. It's founded on Jesus. God takes me seriously, and he says that there is a plan. He says that he is good, and he shows it. Maybe, strike that, definitely, definitely you will sin this week. Hopefully you'll be aware of it. It's helpful to be aware of your sin. And perhaps you will be tempted at that point to think, surely I've completely blown it. Surely that was the last sin, the straw that broke the camel's back. It's all over for me. Or maybe you'll start to think, was I ever a Christian at all? Could a Christian have done that again? Could a Christian think that way and feel this way? And again, you can look around at all of your circumstances and it honestly doesn't look like it, does it? What have I got in my life? Sinfulness. Occasional attempts to please God and live as he wants, but not much. And at that point, we're called to live by faith. I say, in contradiction to all of those circumstances and all of the things that I know about myself, I believe that Jesus died and rose for me. I believe God when he says that if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive all of my sins. And that's living by faith. I will at this stage cease waffling because I'm sure you can imagine lots of other um, examples for yourselves. What I'd love you to do just around your tables is just for five minutes talk to one another What are the challenges to your faith at the moment? What are the things in your life that are making you think, this makes me doubt, this makes me wonder? Let's try to help each other. Let's try to point each other to God's word. And then let's pray for one another um, before we close. So we'll we'll, we'll close in in a minute. Let's say I'm not going to get back up again. So you can talk and pray for as long as you like. uh, And then you should feel free to go home.